Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Well, hello. Today, I have with me Major General Craig Weldon, who has just retired from an incredible military career. And I want to tell you about him first. Then we're going to talk about his brand new book that has come out. You can see that I have gotten a whole lot of leadership lessons from it. And we're going to learn a lot about Craig personally, too. So let me keep going. Craig has given a lifetime of service for us, for which thank you, Craig, for your service. And not only in the U.S. Army, but also in the U.S. Marine Corps as a member of the SES, which it stands for Senior Executive Service. General Weldon was present at the Pentagon at 9-11, which we'll talk about a little bit. After 9-11, he led the effort to, uh, to secure Hawaii against terrorist attack, and that culminated, honestly, in receiving not only national recognition, but also some best practices that were later used in the Homeland Security. General Weldon was asked by the Secretary of the Army uh, Pete Guerin to start a new program called Community Covenant. I'm reading this because there's so much. It came from the book and oh my gosh, I don't want to miss anything. And this Community Covenant was, uh, was devoted to and is devoted to reconnecting the American people to our nation's army. And for this work, listen to this, Secretary Guerin pinned a meritorious Civilian Service Award medal on his chest which is the second highest award given to a civilian employee. And then the very next day, in a surprise small ceremony at the Pentagon, guess what? He received another award, this one, Decoration for Exceptional Civilian Service. He was inducted into the Purdue University Tri-Service Hall of Fame, and I could go on and on and on. But now, after publishing this best-selling book, which is called Leadership, the Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best, and it is an art. We're going to talk about that. Now he's into an exciting new career that we'll talk about because he's now all over the country speaking and talking about leadership wisdom. So now let me welcome General Weldon to the show. Hi. Thank you, Valerie. Happy to be here with you today. We are so glad that you took time to be here today. And thank you again for the amazing leadership that you have shown. And I'm so glad that now in your new transition life, you are off into inspiring people all over the globe with so much wisdom that you have learned living the life that you've led 
and leading for so many years and all the things and the challenges and the ups and the downs that I'm sure came from your career. So uh, let's start with just what I see in front of me, Craig. I see a lot of flags. So first tell us about what those flags represent. Well, in the middle, you see the American flag, and I've always had an American flag, uh, but the, I'm not sure if it's left or right, but the bright red flag is a two-star flag. When you become a general officer in any of the services, they provide you a flag with a number of stars that you have on it. When you retire, you can carry that flag with you into retirement. Right next to that red flag is the Army flag, because that was the service in which I was a general officer. And on the other side, you see the Marine Corps flag and the Senior Executive Service flag for the Navy. Uh, senior Executive Service is kind of like a general officer equivalent, except it's So I was a two-star equivalent as a member of the Senior Executive Service, and uh, that was the flag I had in my office for nine years. And I don't see any of your pins pinned on your shirt, but I'm sure that there are many. You know, uh, Craig, one of the things that I do in my leadership development firm is a lot of helping executives be really clear about their personal brand, their leadership brand, because that's so important. And just getting clarity not only about what their authentic depth of their core brand is, but also bringing visibility to it. And um, so your office says a lot about you. I'm gonna ask you this question. If you could just think of one word that you feel at this point in your career, you are branded for, just one word, what word comes to mind? Um, I would say inspiring, or said another way, inspirational. I mean, that's why it's in the title of my book, The Art of Inspiring people be their best because you'd like to have people follow you willingly uh, rather than dragging them along behind you. So I've been watching senior leaders for 48 plus years. Uh, some led in ways that I was uh, not comfortable with and others led in very, very inspiring ways. I can't, let me tell one short story uh, about that. I worked for a three-star general about 15 years ago and I was his deputy. He was the consummate gentleman. He was uh, very organized. He was very smart, very, very capable. Um, and he never raised his voice in anger. And a colonel came up to me one time and he said, you know, General so-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I said, really, why is that? And he said, because I never wanted to disappoint him. And I thought that spoke volumes. I said, wow, you know, if if the people who work for me uh, wake up every morning, want to make sure that they don't disappoint both the organization and the person that they report to, then you've got a pretty high powered organization. That, that's very powerful, which leads to some of the things you wrote about in your book, Craig. And one of them was on leadership styles. And you very well made the point that it isn't the um, the person that's the loudest or the most um, exuberant or uh, someone that's got an outgoing personality or has charisma. Leadership comes in all shapes and forms. Tell us about Absolutely. a leader that you look to in business life or other aspects of life outside of the military that you admire and why. 
Well, that's a tough one for me because I've spent the vast majority of my time inside the military. Now, I was in the private sector for nine years or seven years uh, between my time in uniform and then being with the, the Marine Corps. And I did some consulting work for the military. Uh, Pete Guerin is one of those kinds of people, quiet, unassuming, uh, absolutely focused, dedicated. And when I woke up every morning in the, in the two years that I worked for him on a program called Community Covenant, you mentioned that, uh, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was disappoint Pete Guerin. I wanted to make sure I fully understood what his vision was, his intent was, and then I could deliver. Um, and I feel like we did a pretty darn good job, but uh, Pete Guerin is somebody I'd, I'd model myself after, or I'd try to anyway. Well, thank you for that. And you told me off camera that that was one of the most inspiring uh, things that you have done in your career. So what exactly is it and what did you do? What was the most inspiring thing? The, I think the Community Covenant program that I was associated with for two years was uh, the purpose of that was a concern that Gen uh, Secretary Guerin expressed that after about seven years of war, and in 2008 when I started that, uh, it had been seven years since 9-11, um, he was concerned that we not repeat what happened in Vietnam, where the American people turned against uh, not just the policy, that would be okay, but turned against the military as well. And as everybody knows, the military serves the nation. It doesn't serve an individual. And so we do, the military does what they're told to do. Um, they do it very, very well. Uh, but if the American people aren't happy with what's being done. They need to talk to policymakers, which are not the military. We just execute what we're being told to do. So because of the concern he expressed about making sure we didn't have a repeat of the Vietnam syndrome of the American public turning against the military, he wanted uh, this community covenant program to reconnect and have an opportunity for communities at the state, at the county, at the city, at the town, at the local level, demonstrate through a covenant a support uh, for their military locally and nationally. And in many, many cases that came with many, many new programs and millions of dollars of support for wounded warrior programs uh, and, and all kinds of other uh, support that, that, the, that the American people were happy to demonstrate. We did that for two years. Um, I went on from that point and uh, moved to Hawaii and became part of the Marine Corps uh, so I'm not sure what happened after that, uh, but in the two years that I was there, every single one of the 50 states and the territories, uh, Guam, Puerto Rico, uh, signed a covenant demonstrating their support for the military and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of towns, counties and cities did exactly the same. So is that something that's, that, is, um, that I didn't know about and it's in my area of where I live in Dallas, Texas, or in our state? Oh, sure. At the time, I don't remember who the governor of Texas was in 2008, but we had a, we had a community covenant signing ceremony in Austin, and the governor was present, signed the covenant. And I don't remember the types of programs that the state of Texas uh, signed up to support but I'm sure they did. And then many, many other communities inside Texas did the same thing. But again, that was 11 years ago. So I'm not sure 
what has happened since. One of the things that I loved in your book, Craig, was talking about the two attributes that you feel so strongly mark an exceptional leader. Would you talk about those two attributes and how you showed them in your career path? Now, that's a bit of a trick question because I hope I answer it the way you think I'm going to answer it. But I will tell you that character is the first chapter in my book for a reason. Because if you don't have strong character, you're not going to be an efficient, uh, capable leader. And so I talk about the um, character as a basic building block for all good, strong, exceptional leaders. And if you don't have the attributes, uh, and there's all kinds of components to character, there's uh, there's um, integrity, there's humility, there's ambition, there's perseverance, there's grit, there's all kinds of subcomponents to the word character. But I think it's so important that at the end of chapter one, not only did I uh, put it in chapter one, but I referred readers to another book that is solely focused on uh, character. It's called Building Your Leadership Legacy by Robert C. Carroll. It's all about character. And that's a superb book that talks about self-reflection on your own character and how you can make it as strong as possible. But, you know, put simply, if you're looking for a phrase, I think um, doing the right thing when nobody's even looking is a good test of a, somebody with strong character. How did you, now, this, is, this is all, well, integrity and humility were the two that, that really struck me. Okay, we're looking at, okay. Integrity and, and humility. So here's my question to you. In all those years, did you ever have a, a little bend because of a decision you had to make to maybe go off mark? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, you are, particularly when you become more senior, there are circumstances that come your way, which sometimes might steer you towards uh, a boundary that you've established for yourself. Uh, when I was a colonel, I was a chief of staff of an army division. My division commander, who was a two-star general at the time, he had a little technique that I adopted, and I've seen many others adopt. Once a quarter, he would bring in all his immediate staff. And by immediate staff, I don't mean all the department heads and all that. I'm talking about his secretary, his aide-de-camp, his chief of staff, his protocol officer, his secretary of general staff, uh, all the people who are around him on a day-to-day -day basis. And he said, you know, I will never cross an ethical boundary intentionally. But because I'm a senior official in the Army, um, circumstances often will move me or pull me in that direction. And so I'm telling all of you, no matter what your grade is, no matter what your rank is, the driver was a staff sergeant, I believe, at, at the time. If you see something that you think is going towards that boundary and we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of that ethical boundary, then uh, you need to say something and say something to me because sometimes I don't realize what's happening until we're on the wrong side of that boundary. And then he had his lawyer come in and tell everybody exactly where those boundaries are. Senior officers in the military often get uh, in trouble for things like travel and uh, gifts and those kinds of things, as do other officials in the, in the government. But there are some very 
uh, joint travel regulation that tells you exactly where those boundaries are. But particularly when you're dealing with foreign countries, they want to impress senior officials. So you'll get some some gifts sometimes that are in the, you know, sometimes uh, thousands of dollars. And you, you, you need to know what the rules are in terms of accepting gifts and what you do with them once they come in. You also need to understand what your travel rules are. I'll give you a simple example. Government officials are not allowed to take a, a, a vehicle from their quarters or their home to an official function. You can take a vehicle, a government vehicle, to an official function from your place of business, your office, but not from your home. When I was at Fort Shafter, Hawaii, I lived on a circle, they called it Palm Circle, and I was probably, I certainly was within sight of my headquarters. And I went to, um, when I arrived there, I had a problem with my knee, so I went on in surgery, had orthoscopic surgery. And a week later, I had to go to an official function, and I was actually on crutches. My driver took me down to the function. We came back that night. It was dark. It was pouring down rain. Uh, Army soldiers are not allowed to carry umbrellas with them. <laughs> Silly rule, perhaps, but they're not. And my driver said to me, sir, let me drop you off in front of your house. It's right there. And he pointed to it. I said, no, drop me in, off in front of the headquarters. I'll walk home. And he thought I was crazy. He thought I was absolutely crazy. But that's a, that's a boundary line that he knew because we had gone through that same quarterly briefing about what the rules are. He knew that, but he was trying to bend those rules to take care of me. And I said, I can't do that. And, and we didn't do that. But I'm sure he drove off that night thinking I was nuts. What a great story. I'm going to remind the audience that this is a time for you to ask questions about your own area of leadership by someone that could probably answer them much better than I in the years I've been in corporate leadership. So be, uh, be texting in or writing in your comments as we go along. I want to go back to that for a minute, Craig, because as an example, I run into people all the time who are saying, but Valerie, I'm working for a boss that mm, his values aren't quite mine, and I need the job, and you know, what do I do if, and that whole fuzziness is a question to share with the audience what you would do if you're in a company and you're working within a culture or for an individual that doesn't share your values, what would you say to them? I'd say it's a tough situation, and I've been in that situation uh, a few times. Uh, and everybody's got to make their own decision about how close to those ethical boundary lines uh, they want to get and whether or not stepping on the other side is worth it or not worth it. And I wouldn't prejudge anybody for the decisions that they make, um, but it's it's a tough call, and I I don't think there's a, a I don't think it's all black and white. There's probably a little bit of gray there, and you know perhaps I'm not saying it is, but perhaps having the driver drop me off because I was on crutches and it was pouring down rain. It was ten o'clock at night. That would have been in the gray area, but let's take a let's fast forward now and let's assume that seven months later me and my driver had a falling out and we were throwing him out of the military for whatever reason and he's looking for a way to get back at me and he remembers that night that he broke that rule and took me home 
That's why I say that, you know, even if you're doing it not because you uh, uh, established the rules yourself, you need to understand what the rules are and where those boundaries are. So uh, it is a, is it a t- very difficult decision as to how far you are willing to go and how long you are willing to stay um, under circumstances like that. I wrote an article recently about uh, General John Kelly, who was President Trump's uh, chief of staff. And it was reported after he left that he told President Trump before he left, don't hire a yes man behind me or you will be impeached. If you surround your peop- yourself as a leader with people who are only telling you what you want to hear, then you are about to drive yourself off a cliff. And, um, and I, I just leave it at that. That's, <laughs> that's really good advice. One of the things that I share with people who are working, who have a boss, uh, when you first go to work for that new boss, let's say, or hopefully get to the boss when he is new or she is new. And two things. First of all, I think the boss ought to sit down with every new hire and share kind of what you're saying happened. Share your values, share what's important to you, share how you like to be communicated with. In other words, don't let there be any surprises so that someone that's working for you missteps or hits a trigger, something that bothers you, and they don't even know it. So that's number one. The boss ought to do that to a new hire. But let's say they don't. There's nothing wrong with someone even later saying to the boss, you know, I just want to really be clear about the best way I can support you and the goals you're reaching, because your goals are my goals. Things like, how do you want me to communicate with you? Do you want me to pick up the phone? Do you want me to always be email, text? You know, what do you... Very, very few, Craig, people think about that one aspect of someone's preference in how they communicate. So as an example, I have Derek with me now, who's uh, my new producer. I had a different producer for a year. Derek's smiling over there. I can see him. (laughs) And the first thing that we both did, we both did that together, and we hadn't talked about it, but we talked about how he likes for me to communicate and vice versa, and it's just been smooth sailing uh, ever since. So another point, though, that is uh, interesting, and this is a very senior person that was um, CEO of a division that wa- of a company that was acquired by another company. And this particular situation was such that the uh, company that acquired them were very, very, very different. Very different in style, very different in goals, very different in so many ways. And it was a conundrum for the man that was now acquired. Well, you know, do I, like you said, it's a hard decision. And I don't know where that decision is, but there was a long conversation about is is there anything in this new culture that I uh, that would cause me grief because of where I come from and my deep beliefs? It's all about right, Craig, doing things right and authentically, and never, never to your best ability compromising. And so, but he was really thinking about that whole aspect. So, thank you for that. Anything else, you, Dad? 
Yeah, I'd love to add a couple of things. Uh, so when I reported to uh, U.S. Army Pacific in 2000 as a deputy commander, I went in with my boss, who was a three-star uh, general, and we had about a 45-minute session. And he told me what his expectations of me were, how he wanted to use me as his deputy. When I went back to my office, I got on my computer and I sent him an email that same day, within an hour or two of our meeting. And I said, let me read back to you what I think I just heard. Here's what you told me you want me to do. And he said, absolutely. So I codified that in what I did for him for that. He was there for about another year and a half or so. And I captured in this bottle this little bit of lightning of communications that we had on the very first day of my arrival. Let me also spin off a little bit. Uh, if you've read through my book all the way, you'll know that there are two appendixes. The first one, Appendix A, is my philosophy of command, which I wrote in 1989 when I became a battalion commander and I had a thousand soldiers. And I wrote that uh, about three months before I took command as a lieutenant colonel of this thousand man battalion. I then sent it out as a draft to probably a dozen people who know me very, very well. And I said, this is how I think I think. Am, am I reflecting myself the way you see me or not? And I got some good feedback and I reshaped it a little bit based on some of that feedback. But when I took command, when I took the flag of that organization on in July of 1989, I had written down my philosophy of command in, in its entirety. It is Appendix A in my book. And to this day, those principles which guided me then still guide me now. Now, effective communication needs to be done in ways that people best understand. And so I communicated to a military audience from private to major through my philosophy of command. But Appendix B, which is also in my book, is a briefing that I used to give to new organizations as soon as I got in there called Weldon on Weldon. And I would tell my organization, this is who I am. For example, I'm an ISTJ. Those of you who know Myers-Briggs know that that's one of the 16 profiles for Myers-Briggs personality trait. And an ISTJ is defined a certain way. And I spell that out in that briefing. What's important about that? What's important is that with Myers-Briggs, there are 15 other profiles uh, that you can be. And, and my deputy could be the exact opposite kind of personality that I am. And that's not bad. In fact, that's good. Because if everybody in the organization was an ISTJ and I tried to reshape the organization to be just like me, it'd be a pretty boring vanilla uh, effort and way forward. So a great leader understands, has a sense of self-awareness and Myers-Briggs is just one tool in your kit bag to get a sense for who you are. Another great one is 360-degree evaluations, which I'm a huge fan of, and I write about that in my book, having people who work for you, work with you, and that you've worked for telling you what you're like, and then comparing that to what you think you're like. This is all about having a good, strong sense of self-awareness so that you, you're not the emperor wearing no clothes. So Appendix B, A, Appendix B were two tools that I used throughout my career when I went to a new organization because I didn't want to go two or three months into the relationship and people are still scratching their head going, what, make Wel what makes Weldon tick? You know, we don't know what he thinks is important and what, what his peculiarities are. One more story and then I'll shut up. I worked for a boss once who had a, a very first staff meeting he had at nine o'clock in the morning. 
and he'd been in command about four days, I think it was, and we were going to have weekly staff calls. So it was scheduled for nine o'clock in the conference room, and I, I got there about 8.50 or so. He came in about 8.55, and other people strolled in right, and there was a clock at the other end on the wall opposite from where the commander was sitting. Exactly at the point where that clock hit nine o'clock, he turned to his assistant and said, lock the door. And there were two staff officers that weren't in the room yet. And when they showed up about two minutes later, he turned to his assistant and said, don't open the door. So he was making a point to them about punctuality that I'm not sure that was the best way to communicate them because it was a humiliating, you know, they could have had a reason why they were two minutes late, but they didn't attend the staff meeting that day. So said another way, uh, maybe he could have had a staff meeting and said, here's what I think is important. And one of the things that really gets to me is people showing up late. So don't show up late. But he didn't do that. He, he did it in a way that perhaps I wouldn't have done. I love your stories. People remember stories. And I was very taken, Craig, by those two appendix in the back of the book. All of that circling back to say, every leader, I totally agree with you, it would serve them well to write something out about this is who I am. When I have an executive leader that I'm going to coach, the very first thing I ask them to do is besides sending their Myers-Briggs and performance appraisals and anything else that would help me, but I say, you know what, I want you to just write to me. Just sit down, pen to paper, Whatever comes to your mind, you can start with I was born, I don't care, but I want you to just talk to me. And it's amazing what they will say back. So why wouldn't a leader, to your point, take the time like you did and just write something out about this is who I am. After all, if you're an authentic brand, you wouldn't have any problem doing that, would you? And this is what I want my people to know about me. If you did that up front, and everyone knew it, then there would be much less chaos. I truly believe that. Uh, I want to go to... Yeah. Real quickly, in the military, you're only in command for about two years, and people are coming and going all the time. So once a month, I had a newcomer's brief, and every single soldier that came into battalion in the previous 30 days would hear me, straight from me, uh, those things that I thought were important. And it really uh, was taken from the philosophy of command. That's to keep it fresh. Great advice. Great advice. All of this goes back to uh, one of your teachable points of view, the very first one we talked about, which is <laughs> character. <laughs> Leadership basic building blocks. I want to go to another chapter before we have to leave today. I wish we had more time. But you are in transition, Craig. You are now a speaker. And I'm sure that any company would find great value in hearing all of your lessons. There's 24 chapters in this book. My goodness, you could probably talk on stage for two days. But one thing I'd like you to share from Chapter 10, how tall is your ladder? Craig, there are a lot of people in transition today. I mean, we're always in transition of some kind. But there are many, many people who are considering leaving a career, starting something else, all kinds of transitions. What kind of advice, you're doing the very same thing, would you give to someone when they've been doing XYZ for many years and now they're moving over into ABC? Give us your thoughts on what's helping you. Yeah. 
That's a great question because I've been through this transition a number of times. I went from 30 years in uniform to the civilian sector in the year 2003. I then went from the civilian sector back into the federal government as a senior executive in 2010. And then in 2019, I went back from the federal government back into the private sector. And one of the things I did in Hawaii was I was a speaker at each of the services on the island, uh, transition seminars for senior officers and non-commissioned officers, the senior leaders of the uh, just level below general officer. And I had about uh, an hour, an hour and a half to speak to them about the things that I have learned that are important in transition. And the first thing I think would be to understand whether you are going to a job or you're going to a location. Because if you're going to a location, your job prospects are smaller. If you're going to a job, they're much, and the location doesn't matter, they're much broader. Uh, secondly, to understand that the area that you're trying to target uh, probably speaks a different kind of language than the one that you've been speaking for the last 20 or 30 years. And so you have to be able to communicate to people in terms that they understand, not the terms that you understand. So whether it's writing a resume or it's communicating in an email or doing your 30-second elevator speech, which I tell people they need to have in their hip pocket. Uh, when I made these transitions, I always had business cards that were associated with the next chapter of my life, not the current chapter of my life. And I would strike up conversations with people sitting next to me on an airplane. I just came back last week from Los Angeles Fire Department Leadership Academy, and I sat next to a guy who's a corporate pilot. And uh, I gave him my business card. He's going to buy my book. He's going to put my book on his corporate uh, um, airplane, $40 million jet uh, for the CEO that uses it to read. Uh, he is, uh, uh, it, you know, will anything come of that? I don't know. But it, I tell people, you know, networking through LinkedIn, through talking to people, through using your resume uh, in ways that you can turn it very, very quickly and give it to somebody. It's kind of like fishing. Uh, if you go to a pond and you're going to fish, uh, take 10 poles with bobbers and hooks and bait and put them about 20 feet apart and then sit back and wait for a bobber to bob in the water. And when you see it bob, go up and reel that one in. And if the fish is too small, you throw it back in and then you wait. And then you see another one bob and go get and reel it in. And if it looks like it's worth pursuing, then pursue it. If you're sitting there for a while, and this is all metaphorical, obviously, but if you're sitting for a while and there's no bobber, bobbers aren't moving, then you're either on the wrong side of the lake or you're on the wrong lake. Go find another lake. You reference the chapter, how tall is my ladder? What I tell people is every career is kind of like climbing a ladder and everybody's going to get to the last rung on their ladder at some point in time. Obviously, you want to strive to achieve a rung on the ladder that you can reach. But I tell people, sometimes you need to be satisfied when you get to that, because if you keep striving for the next rung on that particular ladder, you're eventually going to be disappointed. There's only one top rung in the entire military on a ladder, and that's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And 99.99999% of the rest of us will never get to that rung. So when I heard this story, and I won't tell this whole story because it's time consuming, but it's in my chapter 10, I thought, that's good advice. I'm going to strive to become a battalion commander. And I needed about two more rungs on my ladder to get there. But if I get there, I'll be satisfied. 
and anything after that is gravy. And several things happened after that, promotions and command and so forth. But I kept reminding myself that I got to my new ladder or to my rung on the ladder. And a year and a half ago, when my wife said, I'm ready to move back to the mainland from Hawaii and start a new life because we're too far from family, I started thinking about what am I going to do? And I decided I want to give back to the next generation what I've learned in 50 years. So I wrote a book. I'm doing speaking engagements uh, all over the country. Like I said, I just got back from Los Angeles two nights ago. And it's very, very satisfying for me. But I'm starting at the bottom of a new ladder. And I'm 68 years old. So, you know, people ought not to think that they can't continue to climb ladders. Once you get to the top of a particular ladder and it doesn't look like you're going any far, find another ladder. Well said. So well said. There's nothing sadder, Craig, than to speak to someone who says something like, well, I never got to what I really wanted to do. Well, that just says from what you're saying that they didn't look at any other ladder and left this life with probably a lot of purpose that they never found. And that's part of what you talk about. It's part of what I talk about. And uh, life can be so much more fulfilling. We just wish you the very best in all that you're doing. And for those of you who are um, interested in, first of all, getting his book, it is on Amazon. Isn't that right, Craig? Yep. <laughs> okay. It certainly is. And to learn, it's and again, it's called his pictures right on. You can't miss it when you go to to Amazon. Leadership: the art of inspiring people to be their best. And for those of you who could consider having Craig come in, all you have to do is go to his website, which is going to show in a minute the bottom of the screen it's very simple it's your name www.craigweldon.com www.craigweldon.com craig thank you again for a lifetime of doing it right um, and now others can hear your voice through your new transition so we wish you godspeed and blessing thanks so much Thank you, Valerie. You're you're, you're so welcome. And you have heard now, listeners, and those of you who are watching, a lot about leadership. I want you to know Craig also had some other thoughts that we didn't have time to go through, but I want to mention them, and they'll be in your book. Uh, Some of them are how he breaks down cultural barriers. That's part of the book. That's so important today. He also talks about practicing the 1% advantage. I'm just giving you some ticklers here for what you'll find in the book. The 1% advantage. Well, you can kind of figure out what that is going above and beyond, but read the book. Step up in time of chaos. Oh, boy, we live in a time of chaos. So <laughs> Craig is saying, step up, do something. And finally, one that we all should do as leaders, and that's trust your people. If you don't trust your people, then they probably aren't trusting you. So I will just say, and to get my books, they are also on Amazon, Doing It Right is one, and you know the other one is called Monday Morning Leadership for Women. Until next time, stay authentic, never question, your values are your values, and you'd better live them every day or you're just going to get pimples. See you next time. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, valerieandcompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again. 
to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically. So here is my Valerieism for you, and it is this. It's okay to glance back in the rearview mirror, but keep your eye focused on what's in front. And what I mean by that is there are so many times in life when you just keep looking back at, well, what I did do, well, what I didn't do, well, what I should do. Get those shoulds and dids and all of that out. There is always a path forward. Keep your eye not on the rear view mirror. Those are all great things. And clearly, they likely bubbled up the strengths that are just your DNA, those things that have brought you success. Well, it's those very same things that are going to bring you future success if you stop focusing on back and start focusing on what's next. What exciting new opportunities do I have? And that's my Valerieism. Let me tell you again, it's okay to glance back in the rearview mirror, but focus your eyes on what's in front of you.